I like the fact that you started with that expression, freedom of expression. Uh, you know, some people in the past who have tried to, to touch on that and explain it and raise it have gotten themselves into trouble just by raising that. You might remember the famous case of uh, Gareth Cliff and Mnet where, where he said, uh, people just don't understand freedom of expression. And that was in the context of a very, very painful uh, matter where Penny Sparrow had been accused of being racist. Um, and and uh, that in itself, just talking about freedom of expression can be a contentious issue. Welcome to the Tech Legal Matters podcast by iAfrican Radio. Since 2015, we at iAfrican.com have been doing research and publishing about significant data breaches and leaks across Africa. Some we have reported on publicly, while others were too sensitive and we simply notified the relevant authorities without publicly reporting on them. During the same period, we have also researched and reported extensively on cybersecurity, privacy, and data protection-related matters across Africa. What we have always observed is that not many people and organizations understand the legal implications of the various technologies that they use. In this podcast, we will explore these topics and more, with a specific focus on the intersection of technology and the law, how that affects you as an individual, but also from a business perspective. New episodes of the Tech Legal Matters podcast will be broadcast every Friday. The podcast will also feature analysis, insights, and commentary from attorneys who specialize in information and communications technology law. My name is Defo Mohapi, and I will be your host. Now for a word from our sponsors. Hello, my name is Lucien Pierce, an attorney in South Africa. What I have noticed over the years is that technology continues to challenge the legal system. What I mean is that sometimes laws battle to keep up with the speed at which technology is changing and the various new technologies that are launched. At Pukube Pierce Masitela Attorneys, our team of lawyers all have a passion for information and communications technology law and are well versed in the latest technologies and the laws applicable to them in South Africa. With 15 years of experience as a law firm in South Africa, we specialize in information and communications technology, marketing and advertising, and infrastructure related to these sectors. PPM Attorneys has a long list of satisfied clients and an unblemished record. So visit us at ppmattorneys.co.za and talk to us about all your legal matters related to technology. In the previous episode of the Tech Legal Matters podcast, we discussed how social media can get you into trouble legally. We talked about defamation, how you can get fired from your job for bringing your company into disrepute and other matters. On this episode, I talked to Lucien Pierce, who's an attorney at PPM Attorneys in Johannesburg in South Africa, and we look at some of the practical and case law studies of people who've been charged with defamation. In some cases, they've lost their cases. In some cases, they've won. Lucien, how are you? I'm good, and you, Tefo. Good to be back chatting to you. It's always good. It's always good. Now, we, we've seen in South Africa uh, several high-profile cases over the years where tweets were made or Facebook posts were made and people ended up taking other people to court. And from my side as a layperson, it's always interesting to observe that because I always thought we have freedom of expression and I can tweet what I like and that's all good. Yeah, I, I, I like the fact that you started with that expression, freedom 
of expression. Uh, you know, some people in the past who have tried to to touch on that and explain it and raise it have gotten themselves into trouble just by raising that. You might remember the famous case of uh, Gareth Cliff and Mnet, where where he said. Uh, people just don't understand freedom of expression. And that was in the context of a very, very painful uh, matter where Penny Sparrow had been accused of being racist. Um, and and uh, that in itself, just talking about freedom of expression can be a contentious issue. And I like that you mentioned that one because it's one of the interesting examples in that he was charged with defamation, if I'm not wrong, Right. Well, it, it wasn't so much defamation. The facts of the case, if I can get into it, were essentially that uh, Penny Sparrow had had uh, written this very, very racist comment on Facebook. Uh, she had called black people monkeys because she had looked at one of uh, Durban's beaches at the time and seen many people. And uh, she wrote this really terrible tweet. And uh, she got into a lot of trouble for it. Uh, and then Gareth, a couple of days later, in uh, discussing freedom of expression, raised this and said, people just don't understand freedom of expression. And of course, the response from many people out uh, in the Twitter sphere was that he was siding with, with Penny Sparrow. Um, so, so essentially, that's, uh, that's the background as to how Gareth Cliff got into this problem. What then happened was that he was about to renew a written contract with idols uh, because he was a judge, one of four judges at the time. And uh, when this controversy started, uh, we'll just call it Mnet, which broadcasts idols, decided that from a reputation perspective, to have Gareth still as a judge was going to be very, very prejudicial to the program and potentially its ratings. So they immediately went through a process and terminated his services. Uh, so the whole case ended up being about whether or not that contract was lawfully terminated and whether in fact he could continue as a judge or not. So it wasn't particularly about defamation, it was related to freedom of expression issues um, and, and that was essentially the background, yes. So what law would uh, Mnet have used in this case to take Gareth to court? Was it Labour Relations Act or which law was applicable? So what they relied on was, was um, that he had effectively brought them into disrepute uh, and they didn't want to be associated with somebody who was perceived as racist because that's what everybody in the Twitter sphere was saying, that Gareth Cliff was racist. So the whole case actually revolved around a contract rather than defamation or, or uh, freedom of expression laws because what Gareth then uh, claimed was that he was already effectively a judge on the 2016 show. So if we rewind a bit, there was a show in 2015 that was finalized. In December 2015, Mnet and Gareth started discussing his role in the 2016 season. They agreed all the very important aspects of the contract, his price and a few other aspects. And already they were marketing their posters, their material for the new season, all included him. So in reality, they had sealed the deal and it was just about putting pen to paper. They, however, claimed that there was no written contract. Gareth, on the other hand, argued that there was an oral contract. And eventually the court ruled in Gareth's favor saying, yes, there was an oral contract. How can Mnet come and tell us that there was no agreement 
when all their marketing material, their, their uh, advertising on TV, their posters in various locations and in the press all had him in there. So they can't come and say that he was never a part of the 2016 show. That's interesting. So in South Africa, it's possible to hold someone to account based on oral or does email even apply? So even if there's no signed agreement, so an oral, as you say, with Gareth Lowe is still applicable. I can still take somebody and say, but you made this agreement with me. Or do other factors have to be in play, like in Gallo's case where the posters were already out that supported his case? Well, the reality, therefore, is that an oral agreement is just as strong as a written agreement. The difference, though, is that a written agreement has its evidence, the piece of paper, to confirm. Whereas an oral agreement is now going to need to rely on the evidence of different parties to support whether that agreement exists and what its terms were. So in this instance, there were background emails that had went, gone to and fro. So Gareth was able to support his claim of an oral agreement by bringing all this additional evidence in, emails, posters, discussions with other people, etc., to prove that there was an oral agreement. Whereas if you have a written agreement, all you bring is the agreement. And it's all there on paper, obviously. Absolutely. That's interesting. So just to recap for everyone listening, so the case with Gareth, although it revolved around what was said on social media around freedom of expression and what he said about freedom of expression, the real case in court was more a contract case. Absolutely. That's what it was about. And you asked about emails as well. Now, our law recognizes fully that a contract can be concluded in many different ways, including electronically. Contracts have been concluded by SMS, by email, WhatsApp. even by WhatsApp. So, so you can bind yourself in many different ways and you have to be careful about, about that. That's very interesting. Now let's move to cases that are a little bit more about defamation. And one that was interesting is uh, a recent one or a recent in court one. It was about former President Jacob Zuma up against uh, a minister, Derek Hanekom, about what he tweeted. Can you just give us a quick recap of what led to it going to court? Yes. So in essence, former President Zuma tweeted uh, something to the effect that um, Derek Hanekom was an enemy agent. Now, at the time, this was in the context of uh, one of the commissions that was taking place, the Zondo Commission. Uh, and, and at that time, there were many discussions taking place about former traitors or Askaris um, that, that had betrayed the, the liberation movement. So when this was tweeted, uh, Derek Hanekom immediately took offense and uh, alleged that an enemy agent was effectively someone who was an apartheid spy. And of course, Hanekom had a very solid and strong reputation uh, as a, 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 a freedom fighter uh, during the apartheid movement. So he immediately launched an urgent high court application uh, that had a number of um, uh, 
prayers for relief, if we can call it that, requests to the court. Uh, one of them was that the tweet be immediately deleted or taken down, uh, and there was also a claim for damages. What was quite interesting about this case was that it didn't follow the normal process of defamation actions. Normally, if you sue for defamation, you issue what is called a summons, and then there's a very lengthy process after that. So a summons would be something from the person who's been accused of something and their attorneys draft the letter and they issue it to the supposedly guilty party. Exactly. So the complainant, the person who has been hurt, would issue the summons. It's a court document which starts a formal court process. And that involves quite a bit of toing and froing and a lengthy period of time before it is finalized. However, what uh, Mr. Hanekom did was he used a different type of court process called an application, which is typically much quicker, usually uh, about a third of the time as opposed to what a summons would take. Uh, and uh, the court accepted that in this instance he could use that a method which is normally not used in defamation actions. So he managed to get a result much more quickly than, um, than he would have had he gone the summons route. But the main reason for him going that route was because as, for as long as the tweet remained up there, it was causing his reputation more and more harm. So he wanted quick or urgent relief. And that's effectively what he got. The court eventually agreed and said, this is not true. You know, the court went through quite a lengthy process of analyzing various facts, history, and came to the conclusion that, that what Mr. Zuma said actually did mean that Mr. Hanakom was an apartheid agent. And that was untrue. And Mr. Zuma could not support mm -hmm. what he had said. And that is why the court ruled against him uh, and ordered that the tweet be taken down and also awarded damages against uh, Mr. Mr. Zuma. That's what I was about to ask. So by losing that case, as you've answered, it meant that Mr. Zuma couldn't prove that his tweet was true. Which brings me to the next question. Is everything that you tweet that's not true a possible defamation case? Well, not necessarily. Now, particularly when it comes to the media, uh, the media effectively are the, the, the means with, with which the public is informed and learns about what is going on in society. Um, you know, we can't all be individual journalists and go and dig up and find out what is going on in our community, so journalists do that for us. Uh, up until the, the, the late 90s, if I remember correctly, uh, it was it was quite risky for journalists to report without really having absolutely solid evidence uh, of what they were saying. And then there was a, 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 a an important case called Bohoshi. And in that case, what the the court said was that, you know, if you're going to expect a journalist to have absolute truth, then it's going to be very difficult for anyone, to, to, to report consistently because they're going to have to go and dig and dig and dig and that will delay all kinds of reporting processes. But if a journalist has taken certain reasonable steps to try and confirm the veracity of what they are reporting, then a journalist will have a bit of leeway and might be forgiven uh, for not getting the, the, the whole story straight. So there is an element of leeway in that particular case, but there are a couple of factors that um, 
a, a journalist can also use in 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 a defense of defamation. You know, two of them, for example, is if they've made the report and it's true and it's for the public benefit, so reporting on corruption, then that's a good enough defense to a, an accusation of defamation. There's another defense which is called fair comment. And that was in the case, uh, the best example of that was in the case of Robert McBride, where um, Robert McBride's um, murder conviction was set aside or expunged. And essentially in law, it means that it never existed. So he was pardoned. But the citizen in a report after that still called him a murderer. Hmm. And McBride took exception to that and said, I'm not a murderer because that conviction is as if it was Expert, never there. As you say, yeah. But the court, constitutional court, eventually said, but you can't erase history. At one point, he was a murderer. And that was as harsh as it, it was for McBride because he had been forgiven and did, that crime didn't exist anymore on our records. The court said, well, it's fair comment. McBride, At a point in time. You were a murderer. So as long as your comment is based on some truth, you can say something, and our courts have said, it will be very painful for somebody else, but you can say it. So those are two of the defenses that, that journalists could potentially use um, in, a, in a defamation matter. But coming back to Mr. Zuma, none of, nothing that he said was true. He couldn't prove anything as far as Mr. Hanukkah was concerned. It wasn't a fair comment because it wasn't based on a smidgen of truth. And so the court said, Mr. Zuma, that was wrong. Talking of truth and if that it can hurt someone or they might feel bad about a comment made, there's also another similar case that involved recently uh, leader of the economic, economic freedom fighters, Julius Malema, versus a former finance minister, Trevor Manuel. What happened around that that led to damages of, I think it was 500,000 being awarded? Very similar um, issues in, in that case as well. Um, now, in this case, Mr. Manuel had been party to the appointment of the new SARS commissioner, Edward Kisweta. And what the EFF then said was that in appointing uh, Mr. Kisweta, Minister Manuel had been um, uh, effectively involved in nepotism because the EFF said that uh, Kisweta was a friend and corruption. In other words, there was some underhandedness involved in Kisweta's appointment. And uh, uh, Manuel took, uh, took offense at that. And uh, essentially, he's, he, he sued for defamation, also using the quicker application process. Uh, and the EFF tried to raise a number of defenses, uh, one of which was that they were trying to act as a whistleblower. So the court said, said well, fine, but is it true and can you prove it? And uh, the EFF said, well, we were given this information by a third party. Uh, and therefore we relied that? on it. So, so effectively, uh, they, they couldn't prove, even though they claimed that they got this information from a third party, they couldn't show that that third party's of, uh, statement was true either. Uh, so, so there was no truth in that. They couldn't support what they said. So the court said, again, there was no truth in this, even though you were trying to perhaps act 
as a whistleblower or for the public benefit. You can't do that if it's not true. It was wrong for you to do that. And so, of course, the court uh, in that case again ruled against the EFF and also required them to remove that tweet from their Twitter page. They also awarded damages. Why, why would damages, monetary damages, be awarded in such cases? Well, you know, it, it's, it's essentially a form of compensation for the hurt that you've uh, suffered to your reputation. South African courts, though, are, are famous for not awarding outrageous amounts. You know, you go to different jurisdictions and uh, you find that, uh, that huge amounts are awarded for, for reputational harm. However, our courts are, are, are more in favor of the wrong being corrected, whether it be by way of an apology, a retraction, and then the monetary award is, is simply a kind of solace, if you want to call it that. It's, it's, it's not meant to make you rich. Uh, there have been cases where the court um, has simply ordered an apology and not awarded any monetary damages. So the reality is you're not going to get rich out of defamation in South Africa. Now for a word from our sponsors. Hello, my name is Lucien Pierce, an attorney in South Africa. What I've noticed over the years is that technology continues to challenge the legal system. What I mean is that sometimes laws battle to keep up with the speed at which technology is changing and the various new technologies that are launched. If you are experiencing this challenge, our lawyers at PPM Attorneys all have a passion for information and communications technology law and are well versed in the latest technologies and the laws applicable to them in South Africa. Visit us at ppmattorneys.co.za and talk to us about all your legal matters related to technology. Which is a very important point because looking at all these three cases that we've been talking about, I noticed that it's all high profile people people who we perceive to be well off with the means and money to pursue a, a very luxurious life or comfortable life. Now, when it comes to defamation cases, what am I in for? Can a normal person on, say, 10,000 rand salary a month be able to afford such cases? Uh, therefore, this is probably one of the, the problems uh, of, of law and access to justice. Lawyers, your typical lawyer is, is not uh, cheap. And it is difficult for you perhaps to get uh, legal, private legal aid, if I can call it that, that will cover you for defamation actions. You know, if you go to a, a lawyer at a top firm um, in Johannesburg, for example, who is a specialist in defamation law, you could potentially be paying four to 6,000 rand an hour for that lawyer's services. This is before going to court. And that is before going to court. And typically, that lawyer would not work alone. He or she would typically have a, a more junior lawyer on board uh, assisting them uh, at a rate of potentially 2,000 rand an hour. And then uh, the best part is that it's not the lawyer or his or her junior who will go to court and argue the matter. You might then or potentially will have to get an advocate. Now, advocates are specialist lawyers who, who specialize in presenting and arguing a case in court. And they are not cheap either. 
uh, a very senior and experienced uh, advocate with uh, perhaps a, a good r reputation in this area of the law, you know, you could potentially again be paying five or six thousand rand an hour. And if you look at those combined rates, perhaps spending two or three days in court with a team of three lawyers, that is going to be a very expensive exercise, potentially upwards of 500,000 to a million, I would imagine, and I have no insight into it. But the cost of uh, Mr. Hanukkah's matter, or potentially Mr. Manuel's matter, would have been in the region of half a million, potentially higher, um, that he, they, they would have paid their lawyers. So pursuing such, a, such defamation cases sounds more like a, a matter of principle. Not, as you said earlier, it's not something that's going to make you rich. That's typically why you would find high-profile people pursuing this, because their reputation uh, is, is usually typically worth so much to them, and they trade on that reputation, that for it to be damaged is, is potentially depriving them of their livelihood. If we go back to Gareth Cliff, for example, had that matter of his not been resolved in his favour, the reality is that he would have carried that accusation of being a racist for many years. Even though the matter wasn't related to, to, to racism. Precisely, and that is why he brought that matter on an urgent basis, because it would have impacted on his ability to make a living going forward. Who wants to have a racist, in inverted commas, representing their brand? His livelihood depended on that brand that he had, and that would have been curtailed immensely. So that is why you will find people who are, are typically very wealthy or well-known and who trade and rely on their, on their brand and reputation, whether it be a reputation for being honest, anti-corruption, good administrator, uh, or, or whether it be uh, a person who is principled and has represented, um, you know, some some good cause, their reputations matter, and that is why they will spend a lot of money trying to defend it. So basically, what I'm hearing as a layperson then is that it's not worth pursuing defamation cases in some of our cases. Yeah, it's, it's typically an expensive exercise. And I'm not dissuading the public from pursuing defamation cases because there are many lawyers out there who are reasonably uh, priced, if I can put it that way. But it's still going to cost you a fair amount of money. And for the average person, it, it would really need to be very important for them to spend that amount of money to protect their reputation. It's not a cheap exercise. Um, what one must remember also is that, yes, you might spend a fair amount of money on this, but if you are successful, you do recover some of the costs, not all. You typically recover between 40 and 60% of what you've paid your lawyer. So you still come out uh, with a loss. And, th and that's why, you know, uh, suing for defamation, you must really... Uh, prize your, uh, your reputation to want to spend that amount of money uh, protecting it. Now, I've heard in some cases, and I'm not sure if it's related to defamation, where judgments have been handed down and something along the lines of fees of the, of the, of the other attorneys or attorney's fees must also be covered. How does that work? Well, 
costs, I think. Is costs. Yeah. Yes, that's, that's what I've been talking about. So, so if you win your case and costs are awarded to you, it is the losing party. So you are the winner. Mm. It's the losing party who must then refund you your costs. And these would be standard... So the, the, the losing party would pay the invoice of the winning party's attorneys? Or how does it work? So effectively what would happen is, is you would take your invoices that you've now paid your lawyers during the course of the defamation matter. And it would then be put into a, a particular format that we call a bill of costs. That bill of costs is then presented to the other side, to the losing party. And you then say to them, this is what it cost me please pay. And they will either say, okay, I will pay, or look, let's not argue, I'll give you 90% of whatever it is you're claiming. But typically, uh, there is still uh, uh, some enmity between the two and there is a, uh, a refusal to pay. What then happens is that that bill of costs is sent to the high court and there's somebody, a specialist called a taxing master, who assesses that bill of costs and decides whether you can, as the winning party, claim for everything, or there might be some uh, aspects of that bill that the taxing master might say, no, the other side is not liable for this, and they would strike it out. And once that taxation process is done, that then, the total amount, effectively becomes an order of court. It's binding. It's binding. And the other side either has to pay, or else you can then follow a process of attaching their assets to recover your legal costs. Does that process of taxation attract costs as well? It, it does, um, because somebody has to go and attend the taxation. So it will either be a lawyer from the, the successful party who goes and argues the taxation, because they have to motivate everything if necessary. So that incurs a cost, and that cost is typically uh, awarded as a percentage of the total bill that is, is awarded. So let's say you are successful in proving that you're entitled to 100,000 rand, then the taxing master will give a percentage, it might be 10 or 15%, I can't remember offhand, that is your cost for attending and going through this whole process of having to argue it. And that is the cost that is added on to the uh, total amount that was awarded. Now, in wrapping up, we've, we've talked about the costs involved and why it's typically high-profile people or high-net-worth people that pursue defamation cases. But in some cases, we've seen a sort of imbalance where a Twitter or social media user says something terrible to a high-profile person, and that person takes them to court. Is it still expensive in that case? Um, yes, it, it still would be expensive because the high-profile person... I would think, uh, would probably be able to afford the, the services of a decent lawyer. But if you are uh, Joe Soap and, uh, you know, you don't earn that much money, then typically what's going to happen is you're going to weigh up and say, whoa, I, I, I think it's probably better for me to very quickly apologize publicly and delete. and delete and not go and spend a whole lot of money uh, on principle or defending uh, this matter by paying lawyers. Sometimes you might well uh, feel justified in what you've said, but you then weigh up and think to yourself, hmm, uh, it's, it's just not worth it. Uh, and there's a term some people use for that, lawfare. 
many people use lawfare instead of warfare yeah. uh, to to prove their their case, um, and and they use uh, typically have a lot of resources available to them, high profile legal teams, uh, and they essentially bully the other party into submission. Submission, precisely. Wow, thank you for those insights, uh, Lucian. You're welcome, Tefo. Good chatting. Thank you. As we always say on the podcast, as much as we're discussing legal matters, this does not constitute legal advice. Contact your attorney or speak to PPM attorneys. Remember to tell your friends, family and colleagues that the show is available to listen for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer or any other app that you use to listen to podcasts. Also, make sure to head over to www.iafrican.com forward slash radio. That is www.iafrican.com forward slash radio. And subscribe to get notified on new episodes of the Tech Legal Matters podcast and any other iAfrican radio shows. Stay safe on the web. 